This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway, bunnyslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. Can't see it, but it's it's a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so uh, this month we're going to be doing Jack London stories. So check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes. So check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast. You'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about uh, underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, listen for the episode of, uh, I think it's D U G S. Uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds. If you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself, Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also, probably we're going to have some of these shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us. But, you know, I love producing podcasts. So if you've got a podcast idea, track me down and we'll do something. Especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um... I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But, yeah, no, um, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So, yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio and keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go. Jack London, right now. Recording by Matt Saw. Adumbrations. It was about this time that the warnings of coming events began to fall about us thick and fast. Ernest had already questioned Father's policy of having socialists and labor leaders at his house and of openly attending socialist meetings, and Father had only laughed at him for his pains. As for myself, I was learning much from this contact with the working-class leaders and thinkers. I was seeing the other side of the shield. I was delighted with the unselfishness and high idealism I encountered, though I was appalled by the vast philosophic and scientific literature of socialism that was opened up to me. I was learning fast, but I learned not fast enough to realize then the peril of our position. There were warnings, but I did not heed them. For instance, Mrs. Pertonwaith 
and Mrs. Wixon exercised tremendous social power in the university town, and from them emanated the sentiment that I was a too forward and self-assertive young woman with a mischievous penchant for officiousness and interference in other persons' affairs. This I thought no more than natural, considering the part I had played in investigating the case of Jackson's arm. But the effect of such a sentiment, enunciated by two such powerful social arbiters, I underestimated. True, I noticed a certain aloofness on the part of my general friends, but this I ascribed to the disapproval that was prevalent in my circles of my intended marriage with Ernest. It was not till some time afterward that Ernest pointed out to me clearly that this general attitude of my class was something more than spontaneous, that behind it were the hidden springs of an organized conduct. You have given shelter to an enemy of your class, he said, and not alone shelter, for you have given your love, yourself. This is treason to your class. Think not that you will escape being penalized. But it was before this that father returned one afternoon. Ernest was with me, and we could see that father was angry, philosophically angry. He was really, really angry, but a certain measure of controlled anger he allowed himself. He called it a tonic, and we could see that he was tonic angry when he entered the room. What do you think? he demanded. I had luncheon with Wilcox. Wilcox was the superannuated president of the university, whose withered mind was stored with generalizations that were young in 1870, and which he had since failed to revise. I was invited, father announced. I was sent for. He paused, and we waited. Oh, it was done very nicely, I'll allow, but I was reprimanded. I and by that old fossil. I'll wager I know what you were reprimanded for, Ernest said. Not in three guesses, father laughed. Oh, one guess will do, Ernest retorted. And it won't be a guess. It will be a deduction. You were reprimanded for your private life. The very thing, father cried. How did you guess? I knew it was coming. I warned you before about it. Yes, you did, father meditated. But I couldn't believe it. At any rate, it is only so much more clinching evidence for my book. It is nothing to what will come, Ernest went on, if you persist in your policy of having these socialists and radicals of all sorts at your house, myself included. Just what old Wilcox said. And of all unwarranted things, he said it was in poor taste, utterly profitless anyway, and not in harmony with university traditions and policy. He said much more of the same vague sort, and I couldn't pin him down to anything specific. I made it pretty awkward for him, and he could only go on repeating himself and telling me how much he honoured me, and all the world honoured me as a scientist. It wasn't an agreeable task for him. I could see he didn't like it. He was not a free agent, Ernest said. The leg bar is not always worn graciously. Note. Leg bar. The African slaves were so manacled, also criminals. It was not until the coming of the Brotherhood of Man that the leg bar passed out of use. Yes, I got that much out of him. He said the university needed ever so much more money this year than the state was willing to furnish, and that it must come from wealthy personages who could not but be offended by the swerving of the university from its high ideal of the passionless pursuit of passionless intelligence. When I tried to pin him down to what my home life had to do with swerving the university from its high ideal, he offered me a two years vacation on full pay in Europe for recreation and research. Of course, I couldn't accept it under the circumstances. Oh, it would have been far better if you had, Ernest said gravely. It was a bribe, father protested, and Ernest nodded. <laughs>
Also, the beggar said that there was talk, tea-table gossip and so forth, about my daughter being seen in public with so notorious a character as you, and it was not in keeping with university tone and dignity. Not that he personally objected, oh no, but that there was talk and that I would understand. Ernest considered this announcement for a moment and then said, and his face was very grave, with all there was a somber wrath in it. There is more behind this than a mere university ideal. Somebody has put pressure on President Wilcox. Do you think so? Father asked, and his face showed that he was interested rather than frightened. I wish I could convey to you the conception that is dimly forming in my own mind, Ernest said. Never in the history of the world was society in so terrible flux as it is right now. The swift changes in our industrial system are causing equally swift changes in our religious, political, and social structures. An unseen and fearful revolution is taking place in the fiber and structure of society. One can only dimly feel these things, but they are in the air now, today. One can feel the loom of them, things vast, vague, and terrible. My mind recoils from contemplation of what they may crystallize into. You heard Wixon talk the other night. Behind what he said were the same nameless, formless things that I feel. He spoke out of a superconscious apprehension of them. You mean, father began, then paused. I mean that there is a shadow of something colossal and menacing that even now is beginning to fall across the land. Call it the shadow of an oligarchy, if you will. It is the nearest I dare approximate it. What its nature may be, I refuse to imagine. But what I wanted to say was this. You are in a perilous position, a peril that my own fear enhances because I am not able even to measure it. Take my advice and accept the vacation. Note. Though, like Everhard, they did not dream of the nature of it, there were men, even before his time, who caught glimpses of the shadow. John C. Calhoun said... A power has risen up in the government greater than the people themselves, consisting of many and various and powerful interests combined into one mass and held together by the cohesive power of the vast surplus in the banks. And that great humanist, Abraham Lincoln, said just before his assassination, I see in the near future a crisis approaching that unnerves me and causes me to tremble for the safety of my country. Corporations have been enthroned, an era of corruption in high places will follow, and the money power of the country will endeavor to prolong its reign by working upon the prejudices of the people until the wealth is aggregated in a few hands and the republic is destroyed. But it would be cowardly, was the protest. Not at all. You're an old man. You have done your work in the world and a great work. Leave the present battle to youth and strength. We young fellows have our work yet to do. Avis will stand by my side in what is to come. She will be your representative in the battlefront. Oh, but they can't hurt me, father objected. Thank God I am independent. Oh, I assure you, I know the frightful persecution they can wage on a professor who is economically dependent on his university. But I am independent. I have not been a professor for the sake of my salary. I can get along very comfortably on my own income, and the salary is all they can take away from me. But you do not realize, Ernest answered. If all that I fear be so, your private income, your principal itself, can be taken from you just as easily as your salary. Father was silent for a few minutes. He was thinking deeply, and I could see the lines of decision forming in his face. At last he spoke. I shall not take the vacation. 
He paused again. I shall go on with my book. You may be wrong, but whether you are wrong or right, I shall stand by my guns. Note. This book, Economics and Education, was published in that year. Three copies of it are extant, two at Ardis and one at Asgard. It dealt in elaborate detail with one factor in the persistence of the established, namely the capitalistic bias of the universities and common schools. It was a logical and crushing indictment of the whole system of education that developed in the minds of the students only such ideas as were favorable to the capitalistic regime, to the exclusion of all ideas that were inimical and subversive. The book created a furor and was promptly suppressed by the oligarchy. All right, Ernest said. You are traveling the same path that Bishop Morehouse is, and toward a similar smash-up. You'll both be proletarians before you're done with it. The conversation turned upon the bishop, and we got Ernest to explain what he had been doing with him. He is soul-sick from the journey through hell I have given him. I took him through the homes of a few of our factory workers. I showed him the human wrecks cast aside by the industrial machine, and he listened to their life stories. I took him through the slums of San Francisco, and in drunkenness, prostitution, and criminality, he learned a deeper cause than innate depravity. He is very sick, and worse than that, he has got out of hand. He is too ethical. He's been too severely touched. And as usual, he is unpractical. He is up in the air with all kinds of ethical delusions and plans for mission work among the cultured. He feels it is his bounden duty to resurrect the ancient spirit of the church and to deliver its message to the masters. He is overwrought. Sooner or later, he is going to break out. And then there's going to be a smash-up. What form it will take, I can't even guess. He is a pure, exalted soul. But he is so unpractical. He's beyond me. I can't keep his feet on the earth. And through the air, he is rushing on to his Gethsemane. And after this, his crucifixion. Such high souls are made for crucifixion. And you? I asked and beneath my smile was the seriousness of the anxiety of love. Oh, not I, he laughed back. I may be executed or assassinated, but I shall never be crucified. I am planted too solidly and stolidly upon the earth. But why should you bring about the crucifixion of the bishop? I asked. You will not deny that you are the cause of it. Or why should I leave one comfortable soul in comfort when there are millions in travail and misery? He demanded back. Then why did you advise Father to accept the vacation? Because I am not a pure, exalted soul, was the answer. Because I am solid and stolid and selfish. Because I love you, and like Ruth of old, thy people are my people. As for the bishop, he has no daughter. Besides, no matter how small the good, nevertheless his little inadequate wail will be productive of some good in the revolution, and every little bit counts. I could not agree with Ernest. I knew well the noble nature of Bishop Morehouse, and I could not conceive that his voice raised for righteousness would be no more than a little inadequate wail. But I did not yet have the harsh facts of life at my fingers' ends as Ernest had. He saw clearly the futility of the bishop's great soul, as coming events were soon to show as clearly to me. It was shortly after this day that Ernest told me, as a good story, the offer he had received from the government, namely, an appointment as United States Commissioner of Labor. I was overjoyed. The salary was comparatively large and would make safe our marriage. And then it surely was congenial work for Ernest, and furthermore my jealous pride in him made me hail the proffered appointment as a recognition of his abilities. 
and I noticed the twinkle in his eyes. He was laughing at me. You are not going to... to decline, I quavered. It is a bribe, he said. Behind it is the fine hand of Wixen, and behind him the hands of greater men than he. It is an old trick, old as the class struggle is old, stealing the captains from the army of labor. Poor betrayed labor. If you but knew how many of its leaders have been bought out in similar ways in the past, it is cheaper, so much cheaper, to buy a general than to fight him and his whole army. There was, but I'll not call any names. I'm bitter enough over it as it is. Dear heart, I am a captain of labor. I could not sell out. If for no other reason, the memory of my poor old father and the way he was worked to death would prevent. The tears were in his eyes, this great, strong hero of mine. He never could forgive the way his father had been malformed, the sordid lies and the petty thefts he had been compelled to in order to put food in his children's mouths. My father was a good man, Ernest once said to me. The soul of him was good, and yet it was twisted and maimed and blunted by the savagery of his life. He was made into a broken-down beast by his masters, the arch-beasts. He should be alive today, like your father. He had a strong constitution, but he was caught in the machine and worked to death for profit. Think of it, for profit, his lifeblood transmuted into a wine supper or a jeweled gugor or some similar sense orgy of the parasitic and idle rich, his masters, the arch beasts. End of chapter six. Recording by Matt Saw, Montreal, mattsaw.org. Recording by Matt Saw. The Bishop's Vision. The Bishop is out of hand, Ernest wrote me. He is clear up in the air. Tonight he is going to begin putting to rights this very miserable world of ours. He is going to deliver his message. He has told me so, and I cannot dissuade him. Tonight he is chairman of the IPH, and he will embody his message in his introductory remarks. Note. There is no clue to the name of the organization for which these initials stand. May I bring you to hear him? Of course, he is foredoomed to futility. It will break your heart. It will break his. But for you, it will be an excellent object lesson. You know, dear heart, how proud I am because you love me. And because of that, I want you to know my fullest value. I want to redeem in your eyes some small measure of my unworthiness. And so it is that my pride desires that you shall know my thinking is correct and right. Ah, my views are harsh. The futility of so noble a soul as the bishop will show you the compulsion for such harshness. So come tonight. Sad though this night's happening will be, I feel that it will but draw you more closely to me. The IPH held its convention that night in San Francisco. Note. It took but a few minutes to cross by ferry from Berkeley to San Francisco. These and the other base it is practically composed one community. This convention had been called to consider public immorality and the remedy for it. Bishop Morehouse presided. He was very nervous as he sat on the platform, and I could see the high tension he was under. By his side were Bishop Dickinson, H. H. Jones, the head of the ethical department in the University of California, 
Mrs. W. W. Hurd, the great charity organizer, Philip Ward, the equally great philanthropist, and several lesser luminaries in the field of morality and charity. Bishop Morehouse arose and abruptly began. I was in my broom, driving through the streets. It was night-time. Now and then I looked through the carriage windows, and suddenly my eyes seemed to be opened, and I saw things as they really are. At first I covered my eyes with my hands to shut out the awful sight, and then, in the darkness, the question came to me, what is to be done? What is to be done? A little later the question came to me in another way. What would the Master do? And with the question a great light seemed to fill the place, and I saw my duty sun-clear as Saul saw his on the way to Damascus. I stopped the carriage, got out, and after a few minutes' conversation persuaded two of the public women to get into the broom with me. If Jesus was right, then these two unfortunates were my sisters, and the only hope of their purification was in my affection and tenderness. I live in one of the loveliest localities of San Francisco. The house in which I live cost a hundred thousand dollars, and its furnishings, books, and works of art cost as much more. The house is a mansion. No, it is a palace, wherein there are many servants. I never knew what palaces were good for. I had thought they were to live in. But now I know. I took the two women of the street to my palace, and they are going to stay with me. I hope to fill every room in my palace with such sisters as they. The audience had been growing more and more restless and unsettled, and the faces of those that sat on the platform had been betraying greater and greater dismay and consternation. And at this point, Bishop Dickinson arose, and with an expression of disgust on his face, fled from the platform and the hall. But Bishop Morehouse, oblivious to all, his eyes filled with his vision, continued, Oh, sisters and brothers, in this act of mine I find the solution of all my difficulties. I didn't know what brooms were made for, but now I know. They are made to carry the weak, the sick, and the aged. They are made to show honor to those who have lost the sense even of shame. I did not know what palaces were made for, but now I have found a use for them. The palaces of the church should be hospitals and nurseries for those who have fallen by the wayside and are perishing. He made a long pause, plainly overcome by the thought that was in him, and nervous how best to express it. I am not fit, dear brethren, to tell you anything about morality. I have lived in shame and hypocrisies too long to be able to help others, but my action with those women, sisters of mine, shows me that the better way is easy to find. To those who believe in Jesus and his gospel, there can be no other relation between man and man than the relation of affection. Love alone is stronger than sin, stronger than death. I therefore say to the rich among you that it is their duty to do what I have done and am doing. Let each one of you who is prosperous take into his house some thief and treat him as his brother, some unfortunate and treat her as his sister, and San Francisco will need no police force and no magistrates. The prisons will be turned into hospitals, and the criminal will disappear with his crime. We must give ourselves, and not our money alone. We must do as Christ did. That is the message of the Church today. We have wandered far from the Master's teaching. We are consumed in our own flesh-pots. We have put mammon in the place of Christ. I have here a poem that tells the whole story. I should like to read it to you. It was written by an erring soul who yet saw clearly. Note. Oscar Wilde, one of the lords of language of the 19th century of the Christian era. It must not be mistaken for an attack upon the Catholic Church. 
It is an attack upon all churches, upon the pomp and splendor of all churches that have wandered from the master's path and hedged themselves in from his lambs. Here it is. The silver trumpets rang across the dome. The people knelt upon the ground with awe, and borne upon the necks of men I saw, like some great god, the holy lord of Rome. Priest-like, he wore a robe more white than foam, and king-like, swathed himself in royal red. Three crowns of gold rose high upon his head. In splendor and in light the Pope passed home. My heart stole back across wide wastes of years to one who wandered by a lonely sea, and sought in vain for any place of rest. Foxes have holes, and every bird its nest. I, only I, must wander wearily, and bruise my feet, and drink wine salt with tears. The audience was agitated, but unresponsive. Yet Bishop Morehouse was not aware of it. He held steadily on his way. And so I say to the rich among you, and to all the rich, that bitterly you oppress the master's lambs. You have hardened your hearts. You have closed your ears to the voices that are crying in the land, the voices of pain and sorrow that you will not hear, but that some day will be heard. And so I say... But at this point, H. H. Jones and Philip Ward, who had already risen from their chairs, led the bishop off the platform, while the audience sat breathless and shocked. Ernest laughed harshly and savagely when he had gained the street. His laughter jarred upon me. My heart seemed ready to burst with suppressed tears. "'He has delivered his message,' Ernest cried. "'The manhood and the deep, hidden, tender nature of their bishop burst out, and his Christian audience that loved him concluded that he was crazy. Did you see them leading him so solicitously from the platform? There must have been laughter in hell at the spectacle.' "'Nevertheless, it will make a great impression, what the bishop did and said tonight,' I said. "'Think so?' Ernest queried mockingly. "'It will make a sensation,' I asserted. "'Didn't you see the reporters scribbling like mad while he was speaking?' "'Not a line of which will appear in tomorrow's papers.' "'I can't believe it,' I cried. "'Just wait and see,' was the answer. "'Not a line, not a thought that he uttered. "'The daily press?' The daily suppressage. But the reporters, I objected, I saw them. Not a word that he uttered will see print. You have forgotten the editors. They draw their salaries for the policy they maintain. Their policy is to print nothing that is a vital menace to the established. The bishop's utterance was a violent assault upon the established morality. It was heresy. They led him from the platform to prevent him from uttering more heresy. The newspapers will purge his heresy in the oblivion of silence. The press of the United States, it is a parasitic growth that battens on the capitalist class. Its function is to serve the established by moulding public opinion, and right well it serves it. Let me prophesy. Tomorrow's papers will merely mention that the bishop is in poor health, that he has been working too hard, and that he broke down last night. The next mention, some days hence, will be to the effect that he is suffering from nervous prostration and has been given a vacation by his grateful flock. After that, one of two things will happen. Either the bishop will see the error of his way and return from his vacation a well man in whose eyes there are no more visions, or else he will persist in his madness, and then you may expect to see in the papers, couched pathetically and tenderly, the announcement of his insanity. After that, he will be left to gibber his visions to padded walls. Now there you go too far! I cried out. In the eyes of society, it will truly be insanity, 
He replied, What honest man who is not insane would take lost women and thieves into his house to dwell with him sisterly and brotherly? True, Christ died between two thieves, but that is another story. Insanity? The mental processes of the man with whom one disagrees are always wrong. Therefore, the mind of the man is wrong. Where is the line between wrong mind and insane mind? It is inconceivable that any sane man can radically disagree with one's most sane conclusions. There is a good example of it in this evening's paper. Mary McKenna lives south of Market Street. She is a poor but honest woman. She is also patriotic. But she has erroneous ideas concerning the American flag and the protection it is supposed to symbolize. And here's what happened to her. Her husband had an accident and was laid up in hospital three months. In spite of taking in washing, she got behind in her rent. Yesterday, they evicted her. But first, she hoisted an American flag, and from under its folds, she announced that by virtue of its protection, they could not turn her out onto the cold street. What was done? She was arrested and arraigned for insanity. Today, she was examined by the regular insanity experts. She was found insane. She was consigned to the Napa Asylum. Oh, but that is far-fetched, I objected. Suppose I should disagree with everybody about the literary style of a book. They wouldn't send me to an asylum for that. Very true, he replied. But such divergence of opinion would constitute no menace to society. Therein lies the difference. The divergence of opinion on the parts of Mary McKenna and the bishop do menace society. What if all the poor people should refuse to pay rent and shelter themselves under the American flag? Landlordism would go crumbling. The bishop's views are just as perilous to society, ergo, to the asylum with him. But I still refuse to believe. Wait and see, Ernest said. And I waited. Next morning I sent out for all the papers. So far Ernest was right. Not a word that Bishop Morehouse had uttered was in print. Mention was made in one or two of the papers that he had been overcome by his feelings. Yet the platitudes of the speakers that followed him were reported at length. Several days later, the brief announcement was made that he had gone away on a vacation to recover from the effects of overwork. So far, so good. But there had been no hint of insanity, nor even of nervous collapse. Little did I dream the terrible road the bishop was destined to travel, the Gethsemane and crucifixion that Ernest had pondered about. End of chapter 7 Recording by Matt Saul, Montreal matsaw.org Recording by Matt Saw The Machine Breakers It was just before Ernest ran for Congress on the socialist ticket that Father gave what he privately called his profit and loss dinner. Ernest called it the dinner of the machine breakers. In point of fact, it was merely a dinner for businessmen, small businessmen, of course, I doubt if one of them was interested in any business the total capitalization of which exceeded a couple of hundred thousand dollars. They were truly representative middle-class businessmen. There was Owen of Silverberg Owen & Company, a large grocery firm with several branch stores. We bought our groceries from them. They were both partners of the big drug firm of Cowalt & Washburn, and Mr. Asmundson, the owner of a large granite quarry in Contra Costa County. And there were many similar men, owners or part-owners in small factories, small businesses, and small industries. Small capitalists, in short. They were shrewd-faced, interesting men, and they talked with simplicity and clearness. Their unanimous complaint was against the corporations and trusts. Their creed was, bust the trusts. All oppression originated in the trusts, and one and all told the same tale of woe. 
They advocated government ownership of such trusts as the railroads and telegraphs, and excessive income taxes graduated with ferocity to destroy large accumulations. Likewise, they advocated as a cure for local ills municipal ownership of such public utilities as water, gas, telephones, and street railways. Especially interesting was Mr. Amundsen's narrative of his tribulations as a quarry owner. He confessed that he never made any profits out of his quarry, and this in spite of the enormous volume of business that had been caused by the destruction of San Francisco by the big earthquake. For six years, the rebuilding of San Francisco had been going on, and his business had quadrupled and octupled, and yet he was no better off. The railroad knows my business just a little bit better than I do, he said. It knows my operating expenses to a cent, and it knows the terms of my contracts. How it knows these things, I can only guess. It must have spies in my employ, and it must have access to the parties to all my contracts. For look you, when I place a big contract, the terms of which favor me a goodly profit, the freight rate from my quarry to market is promptly raised. No explanation is made. The railroad gets my profit. Under such circumstances, I have never succeeded in getting the railroad to reconsider its raise. On the other hand, when there have been accidents, increased expenses of operating or contracts with less profitable terms, I have always succeeded in getting the railroad to lower its rate. What is the result? Large or small, the railroad always gets my profits. What remains to you, over and above, Ernest interrupted to ask, would roughly be the equivalent of your salary as a manager did the railroad own the quarry? The very thing, Mr. Asmundson replied. Only a short time ago I had my books gone through for the past ten years. I discovered that for those ten years my gain was just equivalent to a manager's salary. The railroad might just as well have owned my quarry and hired me to run it. <laughs> but with this difference, Ernest laughed, the railroad would have had to assume all the risk which you so obligingly assumed for it. Very true, Mr. Asmundson answered sadly. Having let them have their say, Ernest began asking questions right and left. He began with Mr. Owen. You started a branch store here in Berkeley about six months ago? Yes, Mr. Owen answered. And since then I've noticed that three little corner groceries have gone out of business. Was your branch store the cause of it? Mr. Owen affirmed with a complacent smile. <laughs> they had no chance against us. Why not? We had greater capital. With a large business there is always less waste and greater efficiency. And your branch store absorbed the profits of the three small ones. I see. But tell me, what became of the owners of the three stores? One is driving a delivery wagon for us. I don't know what happened to the other two. Ernest turned abruptly on Mr. Cowalt. You sell a great deal at cut rates. What have become of the owners of the small drug stores that you forced to the wall? Note. Cut rates. A lowering of selling price to cost and even to less than cost. Thus, a large company could sell at a loss for a longer period than a small company, and so drive the small company out of business, a common device of competition. Uh, one of them, Mr. Hasfurther, has charge now of our prescription department, was the answer. And you absorbed the profits they had been making? Surely, that is what we are in business for. And you, Ernest said suddenly to Mr. Asmundson, you are disgusted because the railroad has absorbed your profits? Mr. Asmundson nodded. What you want is to make profits yourself. Again, Mr. Asmundson nodded. Out of others? There was no answer. Out of others? Ernest insisted. That is the way profits are made, Mr. Asmundson replied curtly. 
And then the business game is to make profits out of others and to prevent others from making profits out of you. That's it, isn't it? Ernest had to repeat his question before Mr. Asmundson gave an answer. And then he said, Yes, that's it, except that we do not object to the others making profits, so long as they are not extortionate. By extortionate you mean large, yet you do not object to making large profits yourself. Surely not. And Mr. Asmundson amiably confessed to the weakness. There was one other man who was quizzed by Ernest at this juncture, a Mr. Calvin, who had once been a great dairy owner. Some time ago you were fighting the Milk Trust, Ernest said to him, and now you are in Grange politics. How did this happen? Note, Grange politics. Many efforts were made during this period to organize the perishing farmer class into a political party, the aim of which was to destroy the trusts and corporations by drastic legislation. All such attempts ended in failure. Oh, I haven't quit the fight, Mr. Calvin answered, and he looked belligerent enough. I'm fighting the trust on the only field where it is possible to fight, the political field. Let me show you. A few years ago, we dairymen had everything our own way. But you competed among yourselves, Ernest interrupted. Yes, that was what kept the profits down. We did try to organize, but independent dairymen always broke through us. And then came the Milk Trust. Financed by surplus capital from Standard Oil, Ernest said. Note. Standard Oil. The first successful great trust, almost a generation in advance of the rest. Yes, Mr. Calvin acknowledged, but we did not know it at the time. Its agents approached us with a club. Come in and be fat, was their proposition, or stay out and starve. Most of us came in. Those that didn't, starved. Oh, it paid us, at first. Milk was raised a cent a quart. One quarter of this cent came to us. Three quarters of it went to the trust. Then milk was raised another cent, only we didn't get any of that cent. Our complaints were useless. The trust was in control. We discovered that we were pawns. Finally, the additional quarter of a cent was denied us. Then the trust began to squeeze us out. What could we do? We were squeezed out. There were no dairymen, only a milk trust. But with milk two cents higher, I should think you could have competed, Ernest suggested slyly. So we thought. We tried it. Mr. Calvin paused a moment. It broke us. The trust could put milk upon the market more cheaply than we. It could sell still at a slight profit when we were selling at actual loss. I dropped $50,000 in that venture. Most of us went bankrupt. The dairymen were wiped out of existence. Note. Bankruptcy, a peculiar institution that enabled an individual who had failed in competitive industry to forego paying his debts. The effect was to ameliorate the two savage conditions of the fang and claw social struggle. So the trust took your profits away from you, Ernest said, and you've gone into politics in order to legislate the trust out of existence and get the profits back? Mr. Calvin's face lighted up. That is precisely what I say in my speeches to the farmers. That's our whole idea in a nutshell. And yet the trust produces milk more cheaply than could the independent dairymen, Ernest queried. Why shouldn't it, with the splendid organization and new machinery its large capital makes possible? Uh, there is no discussion, Ernest answered. It certainly should, and furthermore, it does. Mr. Calvin had launched out into a political speech and exposition of his views. He was warmly followed by a number of the others, and the cry of all was to destroy the trusts. Poor simple folk, Ernest said to me in an undertone. They see clearly as far as they see, but they see only to the ends of their noses. 
A little later he got the floor again, and in his characteristic way controlled it for the rest of the evening. "'I have listened carefully to all of you,' he began, "'and I see plainly that you play the business game in the orthodox fashion. Life sums itself up to you in profits. You have a firm and abiding belief that you were created for the sole purpose of making profits. Only there's a hitch. In the midst of your own profit-making, along comes the trust and takes your profits away from you. This is a dilemma that interferes somehow with the aim of creation, and the only way out, as it seems to you, is to destroy that which takes from you your profits. I have listened carefully, and there is only one name that will epitomize you. I shall call you that name. You are machine-breakers. Do you know what a machine-breaker is? Let me tell you. In the 18th century, in England, men and women wove cloth on hand looms in their own cottages. It was a slow, clumsy, and costly way of weaving cloth, this cottage system of manufacture. Along came the steam engine and labor-saving machinery. A thousand looms assembled in a large factory and driven by a central engine wove cloth vastly more cheaply than could the cottage weavers on their hand looms. Here in the factory was combination, and before it competition faded away. The men and women who had worked the hand looms for themselves now went into the factories and worked the machine looms, not for themselves but for the capitalist owners. Furthermore, little children went to work on the machine looms at lower wages and displaced the men. This made hard times for the men. Their standard of living fell. They starved, and they said it was all the fault of the machines. Therefore, they proceeded to break the machines. They did not succeed, and they were very stupid. Yet you have not learned their lesson. Here are you, a century and a half later, trying to break machines. By your own confession, the trust machines do the work more efficiently and more cheaply than you can. That is why you cannot compete with them. And yet you would break those machines. You are even more stupid than the stupid workmen of England. And while you maunder about restoring competition, the trusts go on destroying you. One and all, you tell the same story. The passing away of competition and the coming on of combination. You, Mr. Owen, destroyed competition here in Berkeley when your branch store drove the three small groceries out of business. Your combination was more effective. Yet you feel the pressure of other combinations on you, the trust combinations, and you cry out. It is because you are not a trust. If you were a grocery trust for the whole United States, you would be singing another song. And the song would be, Blessed are the trusts. And yet again, not only is your small combination not a trust, but you are aware yourself of its lack of strength. You are beginning to divine your own end. You feel yourself and your branch stores are pawn in the game. You see the powerful interest rising and growing more powerful day by day. You feel their mailed hands descending upon your profits and taking a pinch here and a pinch there, the railroad trust, the oil trust, the steel trust, the coal trust, and you know that in the end they will destroy you, take away from you the last percent of your little profits. You, sir, are a poor gamester. When you squeezed out the three small groceries here in Berkeley by virtue of your superior combination, you swelled out your chest, talked about efficiency and enterprise, and sent your wife to Europe on the profits you had gained by eating up the three small groceries. It is dog-eat-dog, dog, and you ate them up. But on the other hand, you are being eaten up in turn by the bigger dogs. Wherefore you squeal. And what I say to you is true of all of you at this table. You are all squealing. You are all playing the losing game and you are all squealing about it. 
But when you squeal, you don't state the situation flatly as I have stated it. You don't say that you like to squeeze profits out of others, and that you are making all the row because others are squeezing your profits out of you. No, you are too cunning for that. You say something else. You make small capitalist political speeches such as Mr. Calvin made. What did he say? Here are a few of his phrases I caught. Our original principles are all right. What this country requires is a return to fundamental American methods, free opportunity for all. The spirit of liberty in which this nation was born, let us return to the principles of our forefathers. When he says free opportunity for all, he means free opportunity to squeeze profits, which freedom of opportunity is now denied him by the great trusts. And the absurd thing about it is that you have repeated these phrases so often that you believe them. You want opportunity to plunder your fellow men in your own small way, but you hypnotize yourselves into thinking you want freedom. You are piggish and acquisitive, but the magic of your phrases leads you to believe that you are patriotic. You desire for profits, which is sheer selfishness. You metamorphose into altruistic solicitude for suffering humanity. Come on now, right here amongst ourselves, and be honest for once. Look the matter in the face and state it in direct terms. There were flushed and angry faces at the table, and with all a measure of awe. They were a little frightened at this smooth-faced young fellow, and the swing and smash of his words, and his dreadful trait of calling a spade a spade. Mr. Calvin promptly replied, "'And why not?' he demanded. "'Why can we not return to ways of our fathers when this republic was founded? "'You have spoken much truth, Mr. Everhard, unpalatable though it has been. "'But here amongst ourselves let us speak out. "'Let us throw off all disguise and accept the truth as Mr. Everhard has flatly stated it. "'It is true that we smaller capitalists are after profits, "'and that the trusts are taking our profits away from us. "'It is true that we want to destroy the trusts in order that our profits may remain to us.' And why can we not do it? Why not, I say? Why not? Ah, now we come to the gist of the matter, Ernest said with a pleased expression. I'll try to tell you why not, though the telling will be rather hard. You see, you fellows have studied business in a small way, but you have not studied social evolution at all. You are in the midst of a transition stage now in economic evolution, but you do not understand it, and that's what causes all of the confusion. Why cannot you return? Because you can't. You can no more make water run uphill than you can cause the tide of economic evolution to flow back in its channel along the way it came. Joshua made the sun stand still upon Gibeon, but you would outdo Joshua. You would make the sun go backward in the sky. You would have time retrace its steps from noon to morning. In the face of labor-saving machinery, of organized production, of the increased efficiency of combination, you would set the economic sun back a whole generation or so to the time when there were no great capitalists, no great machinery, no railroads, a time when a host of little capitalists warred with each other in economic anarchy and when production was primitive, wasteful, unorganized, and costly. Believe me, Joshua's task was easier, and he had Jehovah to help him, but God has forsaken you small capitalists. The sun of the small capitalists is setting. It will never rise again nor is it in your power even to make it stand still. You are perishing, and you are doomed to perish utterly from the face of society. This is the fiat of evolution. It is the word of God. Combination is stronger than competition. Primitive man was a puny creature hiding in the crevices of the rocks. He combined and made war upon his carnivorous enemies. They were competitive beasts, 
Primitive man was a combinative beast, and because of it he rose to primacy over all the animals. And man has been achieving greater and greater combinations ever since. It is combination versus competition, a thousand centuries long struggle in which competition has always been worsted. Whoso enlists on the side of competition perishes. But the trusts themselves arose out of competition, Mr. Calvin interrupted. Very true, Ernest answered. And the trusts themselves destroyed competition. That, by your own word, is why you are no longer in the dairy business. The first laughter of the evening went around the table, and even Mr. Calvin joined in the laugh against himself. And now, while we are on the trusts, Ernest went on, let us settle a few things. I shall make certain statements, and if you disagree with them, speak up. Silence will mean agreement. Is it not true that a machine loom will weave more cloth and weave more cheaply than a hand loom? He paused, but nobody spoke up. Is it not then highly irrational to break the machine loom and go back to the clumsy, more costly hand loom method of weaving? Heads nodded and acquiesced. Is it not true that that known as a trust produces more efficiently and cheaply than can a thousand competing small concerns? Still no one objected. Then is it not irrational to destroy that cheap and efficient combination? No one answered for a long time. Then Mr. Kowalt spoke. What are we to do, then? he demanded. To destroy the trusts is the only way we can see to escape their domination. Ernest was all fire and aliveness on the instant. I'll show you another way, he cried. Let us not destroy those wonderful machines that produce efficiently and cheaply. Let us control them. Let us profit by their efficiency and cheapness. Let us run them for ourselves. Let us oust the present owners of the wonderful machines, and let us own the wonderful machines ourselves. That, gentlemen, is socialism, a greater combination than the trusts, a greater economic and social combination than any that has yet appeared on the planet. It is in line with evolution. We meet combination with greater combination. It is the winning side. Come on over with us socialists and play on the winning side. Here arose dissent. There was a shaking of heads, and mutterings arose. All right, then. You prefer to be anachronisms, Ernest laughed. You prefer to play atavistic roles. You are doomed to perish as all atavisms perish. Have you ever asked what will happen to you when greater combinations than even the present trusts arise? Have you ever considered where you will stand when the great trusts themselves combine into the combination of combinations, into the social, economic, and political trust? He turned abruptly and irrelevantly upon Mr. Calvin. Tell me, Ernest said, if this is not true. You are compelled to form a new political party because the old parties are in the hands of the trusts. The chief obstacle to your Grange propaganda is the trusts. Behind every obstacle you encounter, every blow that smites you, every defeat that you receive is the hand of the trusts. Is this not so? Tell me. Mr. Calvin sat in uncomfortable silence. Go ahead. Ernest encouraged. It is true, Mr. Calvin confessed. We captured the state legislature of Oregon and put through splendid protective legislation, and it was vetoed by the governor, who was a creature of the trusts. We elected a governor of Colorado, and the legislature refused to permit him to take office. Twice we have passed a national income tax, and each time the Supreme Court smashed it as unconstitutional. The courts are in the hands of the trusts, we, the people, do not pay our judges sufficiently. But there will come a time when the combination of the trusts will control all legislation, when the combination of the trusts will itself be the government, Ernest interrupted. Never, never, 
were the cries that arose. Everybody was excited and belligerent. "'Tell me,' Ernest demanded, "'what will you do when such a time comes?' "'We will rise in our strength,' Mr. Asmundson cried, and many voices backed his decision. "'That will be civil war,' Ernest warned them. "'So be it. Civil war.' was Mr. Asmundson's answer, with the cries of all the men at the table behind him. We have not forgotten the deeds of our forefathers. For our liberties we are ready to fight and die. Ernest smiled. Do not forget, he said, that we had tacitly agreed that liberty, in your case, gentlemen, means liberty to squeeze profits out of others. Ah, the table was angry now, fighting angry, but Ernest controlled the tumult and made himself heard. One more question. When you rise in your strength, remember, the reason for your rising will be that the government is in the hands of the trusts. Therefore, against your strength, the government will turn the regular army, the navy, the militia, the police, in short, the whole organized war machinery of the United States. Where will your strength be then? Dismay sat on their faces, and before they could recover, Ernest struck again. Do you remember not so long ago, when our regular army was only 50,000? Year by year it has been increased until today it is 300,000. Again he struck. Nor is that all. While you diligently pursued that favorite phantom of yours called profits, and moralized about that favorite fetish of yours called competition, even greater and more direful things have been accomplished by combination. There is the militia. It is our strength, cried Mr. Cold. With it, we would repel the invasion of the regular army. You would go into the militia yourself, was Ernest's retort, and be sent to Maine, or Florida, or the Philippines, or anywhere else, to drown in blood your own comrades' civil warring for their liberties. While from Kansas, or Wisconsin, or any other state, your own comrades would go into the militia and come here to California to drown in blood your own civil warring. Now they were really shocked, and they sat wordless until Mr. Owen murmured, We would not go into the militia. That would settle it. We would not be so foolish. Ernest laughed outright. You do not understand the combination that has been effected. You could not help yourself. You would be drafted into the militia. There is such a thing as civil law, Mr. Owen insisted. Not when the government suspends civil law. In that day when you speak of rising in your strength, your strength would be turned against yourself. Into the militia you would go, willy-nilly. Habeas corpus, I heard someone mutter just now. Instead of habeas corpus, you would get post-mortems. If you refused to go into the militia, or to obey after you were in, you would be tried by drumhead court-martial and shot down like dogs. It's the law. It is not the law, Mr. Calvin asserted positively. There is no such law. Young man, you have dreamed all this. Why, you spoke of sending the militia to the Philippines. That is unconstitutional. The Constitution especially states that the militia cannot be sent out of the country. What's the Constitution got to do with it? Ernest demanded. The courts interpret the Constitution, and the courts, as Mr. Asmundson agreed, are the creatures of the trusts. Besides, it is, as I have said, the law. It has been the law for years, for nine years, gentlemen. That we can be drafted into the militia? Mr. Calvin asked incredulously. That they can shoot us by drumhead court-martial if we refuse? Yes, Ernest answered. Precisely that. How is it that we have never heard of this law? My father asked, and I could see that it was likewise new to him. 
For two reasons, Ernest said. First, there has been no need to enforce it. If there had, you'd have heard of it soon enough. And secondly, the law was rushed through Congress and the Senate secretly, with practically no discussion. Of course, the newspapers made no mention of it. But we socialists knew about it. We published it in our papers. But you never read our papers. I still insist you are dreaming, Mr. Calvin said stubbornly. The country would never have permitted this. But the country did permit it, Ernest replied. And as for my dreaming, he put his hand in his pocket and drew out a small pamphlet. Tell me if this looks like dream stuff. He opened it and began to read. Section 1. Be it enacted, and so forth and so forth, that the militia shall consist of every able-bodied male citizen of the respective states, territories, and district of Columbia, who is more than 18 and less than 45 years of age. Section 7. That any officer or enlisted man, remember Section 1, gentlemen, you are all enlisted men, that any enlisted man of the militia who shall refuse or neglect to present himself to such mustering officer upon being called forth as herein prescribed, shall be subject to trial by court-martial, and shall be punished as such court-martial shall direct. Section 8. The courts-martial for the trial of officers or men of the militia shall be composed of militia officers only. Section 9. That the militia, when called into the actual service of the United States, shall be subject to the same rules and articles of war as the regular troops of the United States. There you are, gentlemen, American citizens and fellow militiamen. Nine years ago, we socialists thought that law was aimed against labor, but it was seen that it was aimed against you, too. Congressman Wiley, in the brief discussion that was permitted, said that the bill provided for a reserve force to take the mob by the throat. You're the mob, gentlemen, and protect at all hazards life, liberty, and property. And in the time to come, when you rise in your strength, remember that you will be rising against the property of the trusts, and the liberty of the trusts according to the law to squeeze you. Your teeth are pulled, gentlemen. Your claws are trimmed. In the day you rise in your strength, toothless and clawless, you will be as harmless as any army of clams. I don't believe it, Cold cried. There is no such law. It is a canard got up by you socialists. This bill was introduced in the House of Representatives on July the 30th, 1902 was the reply. It was introduced by Representative Dick of Ohio. It was rushed through. It was passed unanimously by the Senate on January the 14th, 1903, and just seven days afterward was approved by the President of the United States. Note. Everhard was right in the essential particulars, though his date of the introduction of the bill is in error. The bill was introduced on June the 30th and not on July the 30th. The Congressional record is here in Ardis, and a reference to it shows mention of the bill on the following dates, June the 30th, December 9th, 15th, 16th, and 17th, 1902, and January 7th and 14th, 1903. The ignorance evidenced by the businessmen at the dinner was nothing unusual. Very few people knew of the existence of this law. E. Unterman, a revolutionist, in July 1903, published a pamphlet at Girard, Kansas, on the Militia Bill. This pamphlet had a small circulation among working men, but already had the segregation of classes proceeded so far that the members of the middle class never heard of the pamphlet at all, and so remained in ignorance of the law. End of chapter 8 Recording by Matt Saw, Montreal, mattsaw.org